We are in Matthew chapter 2. How, how do you respond to God's word? When God's word speaks to you, when it convicts you, when it challenges you, when it speaks to areas of your life that aren't always comfortable, how do you respond? Sometimes we, we dismiss it. Sometimes we try to find ways to make it more palatable. Sometimes people will look at God's word and consider it outdated or irrelevant and, and feel like they do not owe anything to it. We know that the design of God's word is to speak to and to feed our souls. It is to give us God's truth. It is the creator speaking to us. And, and indeed, scripture itself says that it is sufficient to teach us truth, to correct us when we are in error, to reprove us in our sin, and to train us in what it means to walk as men and women of God. So there are certainly times when God's word may make us uncomfortable because what it says challenges us. And we're going to see some responses to God's word this morning in Matthew chapter 2. As we read through the entire chapter, uh, we're going to see fulfilled prophecy as being central to what Matthew is, is, is seeking to teach us in Matthew 2, how the coming of Jesus Christ fulfills Old Testament prophecy. But we're also getting to see how people respond to God's word and to those prophetic words, as well as we read the narrative here in Matthew 2. Uh, as I said to you a couple of weeks ago, none of the other Gospels even come close to rivaling Matthew in terms of how often he quotes the Old Testament, how often he speaks of fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Mark, Luke, John um, recite the Old Testament uh, less than half the number of times, each of them, that, that Matthew does. Uh, Matthew is repeatedly grabbing us, and he is saying, look... I want you to see the life of Jesus. I want you to see what he's doing. I want you to hear his teaching. But then I want to show you something else. I want you to see in the Old Testament how this was prophesied. I want you to also see through the lens of all of Scripture how it is pointing forward to be fulfilled in Christ. And so Matthew does that often as he takes us back to see what the prophets and the writers said centuries before about the coming of the Savior. Uh, the genealogy we looked at two weeks ago that starts, Matthew, uh, took us back to that resume of Old Testament names uh, and all of the, the different stories that are associated with those individuals and their failures and their sin, but all of it to get to that place of saying, this is fulfillment of prophecy. This is fulfillment of the promises to Abraham and to David through this line of David that brings us the Savior. And then last week at the heart of the last half of Matthew 1 is the Isaiah 7 prophecy of a virgin will be with child and she will give birth and you will name him Emmanuel. We presume that in Isaiah's day that there was one who was a virgin at the time of the writing who then married and had a child and that was to be the sign. But, but Matthew tells us, no, there's more to it than that. There was not just this fulfillment then, but there is the ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ who truly is God with us. Matthew is repeatedly saying, look, there's more here. There's more than just what you're seeing on the surface. And in particular, what he's saying here in chapters 1 and 2 is, you see this Mary, see this young woman, she is a virgin in whom is conceived God with us. Uh, Matthew wants us to see what's unfolding before us but also with eyes that look back to the promises in the Old Testament. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 2. I want to just highlight for you as we go through it four moments that Matthew cites in, in this chapter where he's pointing out how this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, four of those moments in this chapter, but also then just spend a few minutes toward the end just looking at how, 
how people respond to God's word in light of that, in light of the fulfillment, the speaking forth of God's truth. How do they respond? So a start at Matthew chapter 2. Let me just read verses 1 through 12 to get us started. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. He starts by citing that to distinguish. There are two Bethlehems known to us in Israel, Bethlehem of Judea and further north, Bethlehem of Galilee. This one is the one in Judea near Jerusalem, about five miles away from Jerusalem. More importantly, this Bethlehem is distinctive because it is the place that is noted in the Old Testament in the story of David. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, Bethlehem is the home of Jesse, David's father. So David is presumably born there in Bethlehem, which is why when we get to Luke 2, and the story of the incarnation, it speaks of Joseph going up from his city in Nazareth in Galilee and going to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. And so Jesus was born in the city where King David was born. He is coming as the, the king from the line of David who will reign forever on David's throne. But Matthew chapter 2 starts with some Gentiles. Starts with a group of Gentile wise men. We, we get very little information about them. Um, the scripture only has what it has here in that these are wise men who come from the east. We don't know how many of them there were. We, we don't know if there were three of them. Sorry if that ruins the song for you. Um, but there were several of them. And what we can gather from what we read here is they are influential Gentiles, they possess some degree of wealth based on the gifts that they bring. They, they study the stars, astrology of some kind. They are studying to, to understand what they're reading in the stars. And they, they are under the impression, they are led to believe that there is a new king of the Jews that they are following as they are going after this one particular star. The wise men arrive in Jerusalem. They go to the, the current king over the people of Judea, and that is King Herod the Great. Herod at this point has been on the throne for a long time. He is older, he is not a Jew. He is described historically by many sources as being an evil, paranoid tyrant 
who, who was determined to keep the throne at all costs, not being a Jew, but being king over the Jews. He was constantly trying to find ways to win their approval, but also using force to hold on to his throne, killing many of his own family members, including at least a wife and two of his sons, and then some other sons-in-law. So Herod was a violent person who was determined to hold on to his throne. And now these, these Gentile wise men from another country come and they say, we hear about a king of the Jews who has been born. And that is not welcome news to Herod. They come and present this to Herod and they, they ask him, thinking he will have some advice for them as to where this child will be born. And so Herod is prompted to seek out the Jewish religious leaders. What do you know about this one? What, what do your prophets tell you about, about this newborn king and, and where he might be born? And they answer the religious leaders very matter-of-factly. Oh, well, that's in Micah 5 too. And it tells us in Bethlehem of Judea that that's where he will be born. And they, it's cited here in, in Matthew 2, verse 6. Uh, you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by no means least among the rulers, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They interpret it that to be a prophetic uh, prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ. And so there's the first moment here in Matthew chapter 2 where the birthplace of Jesus is clearly foretold in the Old Testament. The Jewish religious leaders understood it to be prophetic. They expected the king coming to sit on the throne of David would be born in that city of David. They anticipate that. And so Herod indeed finds this out, sends the wise men, calls the wise men back in. It says secretly, sends them to Bethlehem, says go and explore, see what you find, come back and and tell me when you found him, so that I too may come and see him. So the wise men went to Bethlehem. They located Jesus, it says, in a house. This is a short time at least after his birth, so he's in a house. So that probably does in some of your nativity scenes too that have the wise men showing up at the nativity scene. This is a little bit later, but nonetheless, uh, they come and they come to the house. The star leads them to this place and they come in and they see Jesus and they fall down and worship and they give him their gifts and then they left, and they are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, but to go back by a different route. So first one is the birthplace. Look at verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Here it is again. There's Matthew saying, okay, here's the historical story. Here's the facts of what happened. Herod is threatening. Joseph is warned. He takes Mary and the baby and they go to Egypt. But he says, what you need to know is this is all part of God's plan going back to the Old Testament prophet. This is a fulfillment of of the word of the prophet Hosea in Hosea 11.1, 1, where he describes this coming out of Egypt. Now, the, the interesting thing is if you're reading through the prophet Hosea and you, you read this verse, you, you might be inclined to read right past it and think that it's, it's just a description. It's, it's not a prophecy in particular because Hosea 11.1 1 says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. Sounds descriptive if you think of your Old Testament history. It is God rescuing the Israelites from out of Egypt. It's what we see in the Exodus under Moses when God rescues his people centuries before Hosea. And so in that sense, it sounds descriptive of a gracious, merciful God rescuing his people from captivity in Egypt. 
But Matthew says, but wait, there's more to this. Yes, that's accurate. There's, there's that, that sense in which God rescues his people. But Hosea was also looking forward. Whether he completely understood this or not, we don't know when he wrote it. But, but God intended that the word of Hosea would be prophetic. That when he talked about his son coming up out of Egypt, he says God's son Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus, but now it's talking about God's son Jesus who is being taken out of Egypt, who will one day be sent back out of Egypt and back to Jerusalem and back to the Jewish people. With the New Testament now before us, we can, we can see this clearly. Centuries earlier, God spoke in, about his own son in Hosea. He's ultimately speaking of his son Jesus. And so when, when Joseph acts to look after his wife and son and to protect them, it is God the Father who is providentially working through Joseph to guard his own son and to keep him from the destruction that Herod is about to wreak in Bethlehem. It is God the Father who is delivering Jesus from Herod's violence. God's eternal purpose, see it in the prophetic words of the Old Testament now being fulfilled in Jesus. Look at verse 16, let's read on. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. One commentator describing this portion of Matthew says, Matthew's account of the death of the children of Bethlehem is stark. No attempt is made to explain or justify this horror. Rather, Matthew reminds us that Jeremiah prepared us for such a horror warning of the loud lamentation that would come from Rama. This is shocking. This is a horrible scene, entirely consistent with what we know of Herod the Great and the way that he acted and was determined to keep his throne, and so consistent in that way, and yet, nonetheless, it, it stuns us, just like violent tragedies do today, when we stand amazed that that depravity can sink to such levels, that people can shed blood in such ways, and particularly in this case, just to, just to cling to power, just to guard his throne in some way. But Matthew tells us once again that what was written in Jeremiah sounded descriptive in Jeremiah was actually prophetic. This was foretold. It comes from Jeremiah 31, which is a, a pivotal chapter in the Old Testament. We'll, we'll see why in just a moment. But Without what we know in the New Testament, what we would read in Jeremiah 31 is that Rachel being symbolic of, of sort of the mother of, of Israel is weeping as her children are led into captivity, as they are, they are no more in the sense that they are being dragged into captivity. And so it's just picturesque language to describe Rachel in this inconsolable weeping for the children of Israel and the exile that they are facing, the captivity that they are facing. In a sense, this, this sort of connects the same theme of, of Egypt and the exile there as well, that now Mary and Joseph going down to Egypt and, and then the enslavement of the Israelites in Egypt, it all sort of works together. And, and as Jeremiah says, Rachel's weeping is, is just cannot be assuaged. She is just overwhelmed with grief at what has happened to her children in the same manner in which these parents in and around Bethlehem are suffering unbelievable grief 
at what Herod has just done in destroying these children and murdering these children. The words of Matthew 21, 18, where, where that's quoted, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. That verse, Matthew 2, 18, is a record of Jeremiah 31, 15. If you go back to Jeremiah 31, and I'll, I'll read it to you here, but the next couple of verses after Jeremiah 31, 15 offer a, a remarkable contrast. You have this weeping and this sorrow, but then Jeremiah 31, 16 says, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Jeremiah is reminding his readers in his day that captivity, and in and, and, and that day, in fact, captivity of the Jews in, in Babylon, that this captivity is not the end. It is not the end of God's plan. There is hope even in this moment for God's people because God is a saving, redemptive God. God still has a, a plan that is at work here. And so even in the midst of the horror of your grief, have hope that God will rescue his people from exile, that he will deliver them. And we know that's indeed what happened. If we go back, though, and, and we go back historically to the Israelites, whether it was after Egypt and the Exodus or even after the captivity in Babylon, repeatedly the, the people fall back into the same patterns of sin. They have been enslaved and captive, and God sets them free and delivers them, and in no time at all they are disobeying him, and they are rebelling against him. And you, we, we see it in Exodus where they are grumbling and complaining and, and, and in fact, even willing to go back to captivity. They, they think that that would be what they would be willing to do. At least they're willing to voice that. And, and they sin. And, and, and in their sin... In, in, after God delivered them, prompts the need for what Jeremiah goes on to say in Jeremiah 31. The chapter goes on to Jeremiah 31, verse 31, and says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Even at the most bleak and awful moments of, of Israel's history, even at our most bleak and awful moments, there is a God who rescues his people. And so Jeremiah 31 is taking us back to that, that sorrow and that grief. But it is also a reminder in Jeremiah 31 of the grace of God by which we must not lose hope, even in our worst moments, because our God is a God of grace who longs to rescue his people and is at work to accomplish his good plan to save a people for himself. And so Matthew is able to write this and say, Jesus will not stay in Egypt. He will not remain there. He will come back up out of Egypt. God the Father will, will rescue his son, will bring him out of there, if you will. And then he will willingly, as he grows up, he will willingly bear on the cross our sins. And he will endure our punishment and our wrath. And in doing so, the Son of God will seal that same new covenant that Jeremiah was talking about, that, that, that Matthew was pointing us back toward that whole context of saying, you need a Savior, you need one who dies to save you from your sins, and here is the one who has come. And by his blood, he seals a new covenant for us. And so there is hope in this. Matthew is not taking us back to Jeremiah 31 solely to ruminate on grief, even though the grief 
is remarkable at this point. It is incredible, the, the depth of the, the grief that they are going through. And the hopeful promises of Jeremiah 31 were not meant to, to stop that grief. We, we, we were on the whole gamut of emotions, and, and God has given us grief as, as a way to respond to tragedy and to sorrow. It wasn't meant to stop the grief of the parents in Bethlehem whose sons had been murdered. But what is happening here in Matthew chapter 2 is, is ultimately to give us hope. This child who's coming. This one who has been born gives us hope. This child is the seal of the new covenant. He is the, the one who will bring the new covenant to bear. He is the one who will defeat sin and death. And when he does, one day he will wipe away every tear and death will be no more. And so the sorrow of those parents, the, the terrible tragedy that they are enduring, ultimately one day the Savior will ensure that death and sin are done and defeated for good. So there's hope in this. So one last um, moment here that he wants us to see fulfillment. Look, verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. Joseph arose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Here's Matthew again saying, okay, here's the circumstances of how Joseph lands back in Nazareth, and how Jesus now will call Nazareth home and will come from Nazareth when he steps onto the scene as a teaching rabbi. That's the sort of historical circumstances, but what he's saying is that was all foretold. This was all part of God's plan. Of course, what makes this one a little bit more interesting, this statement, Matthew says at the end there, verse 23, so that what was spoken by the prophets, plural, might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene, and if you go back and, and, and maybe you're looking and you're seeing there's no little footnote or anything here pointing me back to a particular verse because there's not a specific verse that says Jesus will be called a Nazarene. And so we, we're baffled a little bit at first when we look and say, okay, well, this, this he says is fulfilled. This is the word of the prophets. And yet there's not an explicit statement like that. What Matthew's doing here is he's, he's summarizing the, the reality, the tone of the Jewish religious culture which was very much focused on Jerusalem and Judea, largely centered there, far south of Galilee. Galilee was up north. You had Samaria in between that was already pretty much enemy land for the most part, land that, that the, the religious, pious Jews would not integrate with the Samaritans by any stretch. And Galilee is north of that. And so Galilee is just a place that is looked down on with disdain. And a teacher from Galilee simply cannot be as educated or somebody who you would regard in any serious way like you would somebody who had been trained and equipped in Jerusalem. A lot of you have lived in a bunch of different places and, and, and you are familiar with sort of regional contempt where, you know, my state, my city, my county is special and much more, much better than that state or that city or that county, right? I grew up in New Jersey and I know, I know, I know you're thinking, <laughs> you're thinking what a privilege to have grown up in the garden state of all places. But I gotta tell you, I mean, just being honest, as a child, I knew New Jersey had a little bit of an inferiority complex because we were looked down on by New York City and we had Philadelphia to the south. You had these two major cities and we were sort of regarded as the industrial swamp in the middle. 
Those of us from Jersey know a little bit better than that, but you know, we, we got treated that way. The Jewish religious upper class looked at Galilee kind of like the New Yorkers would look at Jersey. Like, you, you, you're, you're not worth anything coming from there. In fact, we see that mentality in the Gospel of John when Philip goes to Nathaniel and says, I think we found him. I think we found the one. And Philip says to Nathaniel, this is the one. And he points to him in John 146 and, and he starts following him. And Nathaniel says, wait a minute, can anything good come from Nazareth? How can you follow a teacher from out of that city? All of that comes from, even though it's not explicit in, in, in terms of the Old Testament saying that particular phrase, the attitude is throughout the Old Testament that there is a hierarchy amongst Judaism that ultimately will, when the servant of God comes forward, he will be looked on with disdain. He will be looked on with contempt. They will not embrace the Savior as some wonderful rabbinic scholar. They will look at him as somebody who they, they can't give the time of day to. And we, Isaiah 49 says, God's servant will be deeply despised. Isaiah 53 certainly echoes that. Um, that, that attitude that when Jesus Christ appeared, being from Nazareth, that would be just another strike against him. He was from sort of the wrong side of the town kind of attitude is what you get there. And Matthew tells us here that Joseph leaves out of Egypt, headed for Judea, thinking he's going to be back in Jerusalem, and instead, in a dream, is warned to head back to Nazareth, and that becomes Jesus' hometown. And he will be treated with contempt because he is from there, just as the Old Testament prophecies foretold. Four Old Testament prophecies, four moments where Matthew has said to us, okay, so here's, here's what happened, but all of this was God's plan, all being executed precisely as God foretold. D.A. Carson has a wonderful quote. He says, Christianity does not present itself as an entirely new religion founded a mere 2,000 years ago, but as the fulfillment of the revelation that the God of creation had already given, the climax to which God was shaping history. That is part of the reason why Christians read the Old Testament along with the New Testament. The two parts belong together as components of one coherent revelation. We revel in the fulfillment of prophecy. When Matthew points it out, we see that it, it, it just strikes us again on the authority and the coherency and, and the message of Scripture as pointing us to Jesus Christ. But here's the other thing I just want you to see, and we'll just, for our last few minutes, just think about this, and that is... Each of these prophetic words is a revelation of God's word. Each time Matthew is, is, is essentially saying that a diligent student of the word of God could read these prophecies and now see Jesus and put them together and say, ah, I see this now being unfolded in Jesus Christ. So how did people respond? How did they see that? How did they respond to it? And I, I think we get three glimpses in this passage of how people respond to God's word. And I think it illustrates how people respond to God's truth today. Anger, apathy, and adoration are the three we see here. Anger, apathy, and adoration. First, there's Herod and the anger. Herod is, is livid at what is happening. The, the context for this whole story in Matthew 2 really is set around Herod because chapter 2, verse 1 says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. That's the historical context for this. Herod is in charge. Herod is growing old. He's nearing the end of his life. He is determined to cling to his throne. And now he is being faced with the, the word that there is a new king, that there is a child who has been born who will be king of the Jews. And Herod was furious. In his mind, 
this child comes to take away everything that is valuable to him. We know by Herod's actions, he didn't love family. He didn't particularly love friends. Herod only loved those who were loyal to him because they were scared to death of him for the most part. Herod wanted people who obeyed him at all costs and would do whatever he said, and that's, that's what he demanded of you. And he respected you if you were loyal, and that was it. And the one thing Herod was sure of was no one was taking away his power. He'd been on the throne for decades. He'd killed plenty of people to keep his throne, and he was not about to lose it to some baby born in Bethlehem, to some child. Herod could do what he wanted, when he wanted, to whomever he wanted, seemingly without consequences, because he was the king and he held the power. And so some men from another country, some Gentiles come, and they come in and they say, we have witnessed this supernatural phenomena, and as we've been studying this and thinking about this, we believe there is a new king for the Jews who has been born. And you can only imagine what is going on in Herod's heart at this moment. He wants to find if this child is real, if he, then he is a threat, and he must be destroyed. And verse 16 says, when Herod figured out that the wise men, they, they did not come back to him, it says he was furious. The, the Greek word there is thumao. It is to be filled with wrath. There's no bridling Herod at this moment. There's no court of counselors that say, all right, just relax. It's just a child in Bethlehem. It's nothing to get all excited about. There is no bridling the rage in Herod at this point. He wants to destroy this child, and there's no dialing it back. And in fact, I think verse 3 probably says it well. Verse 3 says, when Herod the king heard this, that the wise men had come, and we're talking about a newborn king, when Herod heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. The word for troubled is the idea of agitated. That, that sense of when you're really stirred up about something and you, you just can't even hardly stand still, it's bothering you so much and you're just torn up by it. It says Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. I, I don't think that means that the city of Jerusalem was upset about this idea of a king of the Jews being born. They knew that when Herod was agitated, he, he could do anything at that moment. There was the potential for violence or, or he could do something out of that agitation and it could create problems for everyone. And so all of Jerusalem now is troubled as these wise men have come. The whole city is now wondering what is going to happen. And Herod is angry. There are, are, are people today whose response to the truth of God's word may not be as violent or as unstable as Herod, but make no mistake, they do not want to be told what to do. They do not want to have some book that says it is God's word speaking into their lives and telling them what is true, what is good, and what is evil. And they respond, perhaps not in the same violent outpouring as Herod, but certainly in their hearts with the same degree of outrage at who is this God who would dare to speak in such absolute terms about what it is that I must believe. We see it in our culture when it comes to issues of marriage and sexuality and life and, and all of that. Our, our, our culture just gets outraged at some of the things that they hear from Christianity, from what they hear from God's word. But they are not alone. You and I know that, that there are times when God's truth speaks into our lives, and it doesn't always make us feel particularly happy. We are convicted about something. We have, we're in, in a moment, and some brother or sister comes and speaks God's truth into our lives, and we really didn't want to hear that at the moment. We just wanted somebody to just... 
listen to us and vent with us and gossip with us or whatever it is. And instead, they, they, they speak God's truth to us. And something in our heart just doesn't want to hear that in the moment. We, we've experienced that as well. If God's truth of what God says in his word about you, your thoughts, your sin, your heart, your desperate need for a savior, if any of that makes you angry and it makes you turn your back on him and dismiss God, the trouble is not with God, it is with you. God is speaking his truth to us in his word. We are called to submit to his word and to obey it. And like Herod, you may reject God outright in this life. You may reject his ways. You may despise his truth. You may be angry at, at what you hear from God's word. But the word of God in Hebrews 9, 27 says, it is appointed for man to die once and after that to face judgment. You will stand accountable before him. Herod stood accountable for all of his power and all that he controlled for all of those decades. Herod died and he stood before his creator accountable for his life before him. Romans 14, 10 through 12 says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God so that each of us will give an account of himself to God. For all of Herod's massive earthly power, he bows the knee to God in the end because God is the one who is the master and it is his word that speaks to us. It is his grace that comes to us through his word. And so as we as we take in his word and we are tempted to respond poorly sometimes, let's remember that we are called to respond to God's truth as a loving God who is speaking for our good and for his glory through his word to us. Second reaction in this passage is apathy. This is the Jewish religious leaders. I think this one's kind of the more astounding one. Herod, we expect to be angry. Here we've got the Jewish religious leaders. This discussion between the wise men and Herod about the star and the newborn king was not done in isolation. Even though it says Herod called them back in secret to send them to Bethlehem, the story begins in verse 2 with saying, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, present tense, they, they were continuing to say as they were in Jerusalem, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Word got to Herod from the street that these wise men were going around and saying, hey, where, where's the king of the Jews? We heard the king of the Jews was born. Where, where is he? Where is he? And so there's, there's no sense here in which the Jewish leaders are immune from any of this conversation. When Herod calls them in to inquire of them, there has to be at least some knowledge that these wise men, these Gentiles from the East, have already caused a bit of a stir in Jerusalem with their questions and, and, and going around and asking people about the newborn king. And now Herod's asking. And, and so Herod calls them in, says, where is he born? They very matter-of-factly say, well, it's Bethlehem. Micah says that. And he thanks them, and he sends them on their way. And there is no indication whatsoever that they did anything with that, which is really rather astounding if you think about it. Here is the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior, the Christ, the one that they have been anticipating, they know that he is to be born in Bethlehem. Strangers from a Gentile land come in and go, we've heard that the king has been born, the king of the Jews. And yet it looks like they went home at the end of the day and their work was done and probably were quite proud of themselves that they had been called into Herod's court and answered correctly. We, we talked to the king today and we gave him the right answer. And, and you'd like to think that these priests and scribes would 
connect the dots between the Gentile wise men and the word on the streets and Herod's question, and that at least one of them would have said, hey, Bethlehem's only like five miles away. We got we to go take a look and just see if there's anything to this. And yet there's nothing in Scripture in any of the accounts of the birth of Jesus that show the Jewish religious leaders coming and bowing and recognizing their king. Every indication is that they called it a day. If the long-awaited heir to the throne of David just may have possibly been born, don't you think that's sort of enough to get your attention, and yet their response is apathy? So like what James says, the, the, the hearer of the word only, not the doer of the word. Sort of like looking into the mirror and you look into it and you go, oh, yeah, I see a problem there. And then you turn around and you completely forget it. And, that, and that's what they did. They, they had this conversation about the birth of the king. They knew what was going on and they were completely unfazed. We look at this and it's tempting for us to say, how, how do you guys know God's word as intricately as you do, able to answer the question of the king just like that and not seem to care. And yet, let's think about our own hearts for just a moment. Have you ever treated prayer, the opportunity to have sweet communion with the God of the universe, the creator, have you ever treated prayer like a chore, like something that's boring, like something that has to be done, something that you'd rather do something else and, and, and avoid, right? We, we've struggled there all of us at one time or another with our prayer lives and apathy. God's word, have you ever sort of done it out of sort of rote action? I, I read it and I look at it and I close it and I go on and I, I, I do my day and it doesn't really have a huge impact. We, we experience this. We're not immune from this sort of apathy. We've all struggled with it at one time or another when it comes to having fellowship with the kind, gracious God of the universe who longs to hear his children's prayer, who encourages us to pray and to seek him out and longs to speak to us through his word. And we get busy. We get preoccupied. We have other priorities that get in the way. We know the, the story. We, we know what these Jewish leaders were missing. And yet, how foolishly sometimes we're just like Martha in Luke chapter 10. And, and she is, as it says, distracted with serving. When there is an opportunity to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear him teach and take in what he has to say, and, and she's just fully preoccupied with everything that's got to be done. We, we've been there before. The last reaction here is the adoration of the Gentile wise men. One commentator put it this way, Israel knew precisely where the king of the Jews would be born, but it was the Gentiles who worshipped him first. Verse 10 says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. There's some adjectives in there to try to help us get it in the Greek text that they are borderline delirious. And it is not just the joy that comes with the end of the long road trip when you finally get to your destination and you're happy that you're finally at the end. It's not just because they were at the house. It's because they were at the place where the one, the object of their affection, the object of their desire was. They, the, the star had led them to the place where Jesus was. And we see that in their response when they walk in the house and they see Mary and then they see the king of the Jews. And it says that they fell down on their knees and they worshiped him. They bowed to the ground and they presented gifts to him to express their adoration to him. We don't know how much these, these Gentile wise men fully understood 
about the king of the Jews, whether they fully understood God with us, a savior to, to die for the sins of his people. We do know that God is in some way leading them, is at work in their hearts, and whether or not they fully knew that this was God in flesh before them, they experienced incomparable joy in his presence. Their hearts were so glad at what they had seen. And it's a baby. It, it, it's an unrelated baby from a village hundreds of miles away from their own, and they are filled with joy because they believe they have seen the newborn king. You walk through the Gospels, and, and, and there are so many comments about joy and the desire for us to have joy. When, when John the Baptist was, after he had baptized Jesus, it says that he had said to his followers that his joy was now complete. Doesn't mean complete in the sense of that's all the joy I've got, now it's done. It means he had his joy. He's saying to his followers, I am as full of joy as I could possibly be. My joy is at fullest measure because I have now seen the one who is coming to save his people from their sins. In Jesus' farewell discourse in John 15, 16, 17, he repeatedly speaks about joy. He's warning his disciples that he will go away and they will face persecution and there will be hardship, but he keeps saying, but you will experience joy. He says, I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. I'm telling you this now as you prepare for what will seem like the worst day in your life when I go from you, to tell you that you will have joy, and it's my joy in you. He even goes on in that discourse to describe it as a woman in childbirth. Your sorrow will turn to joy, and I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will be able to take your joy from you. No circumstances, no, no person, nothing can take that joy that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. Often you, you might not know it by looking at our lives and our not always happy faces as we're in the midst of circumstances that aren't going particularly well. But we, we have reason for the greatest and fullest joy of all. This Savior, promised in the old, is now fulfilled in the new and has come to save us from our sins, has come to be God with us, and has come to make our joy complete that we might have fullest of joy regardless of what we walk through. Doesn't mean that we don't still run the whole gamut of emotions, that we don't experience grief and hardship and all of that, but we ultimately know that there is a Savior who has triumphed over sin and death and risen to life and will wipe away every tear and death will be no more. And so adoration for God and his gospel and Worship of Jesus Christ and this deep-seated joy should be natural for us because God has now shown us his truth of who this Savior is and how he has come for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we sing, we rejoice, we meditate on the word because we, we are glad, we are filled with joy at what you have done. Father, as we embark on a new week full of travel or meals together or times of sweet fellowship with family members, also the pressures and challenges that, that the week holds before it, Lord, may we be a people of sincere joy in what we do, how we respond to others. May it not just be circumstances and in the joy of celebrating with family members. Lord, we thank you for that gift, that blessing that we are to enjoy. But may the, the heart of our joy, may it come from 
resting in our Savior, in believing in Jesus Christ, and in knowing that in the Savior we have hope beyond this life. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for crushing the power of sin and death at the cross and for the promise that you will come again for your people. Lord, we pray that even as we lift up our voices right now in song, that you would experience from us the worship and adoration. Uh, Not unlike those Gentile wise men who bowed before you, may we lift up our voices now knowing fully who you are and what you have done. And out of gratitude that comes deep from within, may we give you great joy and rejoicing. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who is not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, Father, would you open their eyes? Would you cause them to see the the death and suffering and then resurrection of Jesus Christ as, as that which they need to trust in, believe in, as the penalty that was paid for sin and the conquering of death and sin that is promised through the resurrection. Thank you that in Christ alone there is hope for eternal life. We pray all these things in the great name of Jesus. Amen.